I want to talk to you about the power of praise under pressure. I'm a coffee drinker. I like my coffee strong. I like my coffee in the morning. And I like a lot of coffee. Anybody else with me today? Yeah, okay, we got some other addicts here. I grew up in Spain. Spain has strong coffee. They like, uh, I like my coffee strong. And my wife says I drink a little too much coffee in the morning, but it's just uh, one of those habits. But sometimes in the evening time, I'll uh, drink some green tea. And so I'll take the, my wife has this kettle. We warm up the water. Two days ago, I filled up the kettle with water, turned on the burner, went to do other things, forgot that I had it on there. And then suddenly I hear this, is that pretty good? That's pretty good, right? I'm like, what is that? And then I realize, ah, the kettle on the fire. And here's what happens. I don't know how to describe it in scientific terms, but the H2O, as it gets heated up, those molecules start busting against one, one another a lot faster as the pressure rises and as the heat goes up, the, the H2O starts to beat against one another hot, hotter and hotter, faster and faster until it materializes into steam and that steam inside of that kettle then needs a place to escape and as it escapes, it shoots out through the spout and it makes that noise because... When there is pressure, when there is pressure, there needs to be a release valve for that pressure. And what comes out of that kettle is steam. Here's what I know, that all of us are a little bit like that tea kettle. That oftentimes we get into situations where we're pressurized. All it takes is an hour and a half in Chicago traffic, and I feel the pressure. It just starts boiling up inside. It just starts coming out. And let me tell you what happens. When you're under enough pressure, that pressure comes out somehow. And usually it comes out through your mouth. Some of you that are a little bit less sanctified, some words come out that are bleep, 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 bleepy. And whatever, whatever it is that is inside of you, some of you uh, have a tendency to go into self-pity parties. And so when you get under pressure and when you're anxious and it starts to stir up, you start saying, I can't believe this has happened to me. Okay, and you just start whining. And so you go into the whining mode. Others of you go into an angry mode and it just shoots out anger because under pressure, whatever's inside starts coming out. And here's what I want to say. I believe that God has a design for you, for the person that's a follower of Jesus. The Bible says that we are to be filled with his spirit. The spirit is the third person of the Godhead called the Holy Spirit. That means that there is something invisible that happens to your being that you cannot put a finger on, but you are made up of body, soul, and spirit. The body's the part of you that you can feel, that gets tired, that you see in the mirror. The soul part of you is your personality, your intellect, and your will. That's what we call the you. 
But there's another dimension to you that oftentimes we neglect that people don't talk about a lot, but it's the spirit part of you. It's that dimension of your being that has a sensitivity and a connection to the spirit world. You are a spirit being. And it's that part of you that the Bible says that when you become a full-fledged follower of Jesus the Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes and fills your spirit, and it says, and you are filled with the Spirit. So when you're filled with the Spirit and walking in the fullness of the Spirit, when you're under pressure, what comes out is something spiritual and not carnal. So I want to talk to you about the power of that at this moment, looking at a story that's found in Acts chapter 16. I believe that many of us lose it under pressure, and I believe that there's a power that we need to rediscover when we're under pressure that helps to change the spiritual culture around us. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, let me read you this sentence. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, if you just read that sentence, you would sort of assume that they're in a church gathering, a renewal meeting, a prayer meeting. You would assume that the lights are flashing, the band is up there, people have their hands raised, they're swaying back and forth, and we're singing some song like we just did a few minutes ago, but that's not the case. Zoom out a little bit and you'll see the context. The context is Paul and Silas are in prison. They're bloody. They're bruised. They're in shackles. They're in prison. They don't know what their destiny is the next day. And yet it says at midnight, Paul and Silas, under pressure, under pressure, suddenly they're singing, praising, under pressure. Let's look a little bit about what happens with that and how you and I can learn from this story. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down as we talk about power of praise under pressure. Number one, the most powerful sound is the voice of praise lifted from our darkest moments in life. Acts chapter 16, I'm going to read verses beginning in verse 22. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners we're listening. Let me give you the background story because I think some of you, I really believe that some of you need to hear this message. And I believe that God is going to speak through his spirit to some of you about your situation. Paul, the apostle Paul, you remember his story? He was an adamant persecutor, anti-Jesus person. He had an encounter on the Damascus road on the way to Damascus, knocked him off his horse he had to be awakened 
into his Christianity. His life turned around and he became, he went from being a persecutor of Christianity to one of the greatest uh, proponents of Christianity. We call him now the Apostle Paul. He had a sidekick named Silas. They traveled around together. This was their second, what scholars call missionary journey. Basically what Paul and Silas would do is they would, uh, they would set out with very little provision and they would go from town to town, from village to village, from community to community, and they would proclaim the message that they had heard as people responded. They would form what we would call churches. They were gatherings and homes. And oftentimes they were run out of towns. They were, uh, they were chased out. They were beaten. They were ostracized. But they went from place to place seeing where God would lead them. Well, in this particular occasion, they had planned out their missionary journey, and Paul, before he left, he had a vision. A vision is different than a dream. A dream happens when you're sleeping. A vision is something that when you're awake, he had a vision while he was awake, not while he was sleeping. And a man from Macedonia, which was an area that they fought, the uh, area in Asia Minor, a man from Macedonia was calling him. And he sensed that the Spirit of God was saying, don't go where you were planning on going. And so he changed his plans right away, and he followed the vision because he felt like he needed to go to Macedonia, not knowing what would happen or what to expect. Can I just pause a moment and give you a little spiritual insight there? I believe that life is not random. If there is a God that is sovereign, creator, master over time, matter, and sequence of events, then there is never coincidence in God. If you are a follower of Jesus the Christ, you are always on mission. That means that when you have a flat tire and you're paused on the expressway, one of the questions that should come to your mind is, what is God doing? Um, this may, uh, there may be someone that stops or someone that you run into that you would never run into unless you had that flat tire. If there's a delay on your flight and you have to take another flight, God could be orchestrating events so you sit next to someone that is in your seat that has been maybe praying somewhere saying, God, I need uh, a sign from you. I'm, I, I, I need to know you. I'm lost in my world and God will delay a flight to connect you so that you can end up sitting next to someone little knowing that they have been praying silently in the room that someone would speak to them and God sits you right next to them so that you could be the voice of God to speak to them because there are no coincidences in God. God is the master connector. And so I want you to be aware of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're always on mission. So uh, Paul is rerouted from his original plan, and he is rerouted. I remember a trip that I was taking uh, years ago with my, my son Josiah was on that trip, and uh, um, another friend was on that trip, and we had to speak in Spain. I was speaking at an event, 
and our plane got delayed in New York. We got rerouted because there was a, a strike of air traffic control people in Madrid, Spain. We were supposed to land in Madrid, and we're flying to Europe, and the pilot says, hey, we can't land in Madrid. We're rerouting to Paris. Well, the one kid that never been to Paris was all excited about it. And I wasn't excited about it because I thought I'm going to miss this conference that I'm supposed to speak at. But we had prayed that God would do what he needs to do on this trip. And so we landed and I'm like, Lord, this is not a good thing that we're stuck in Paris when I'm supposed to be in Madrid. And I was going to pick up my suitcase and I just thought, God, Lord, you have a purpose and a plan. And there was a guy next to me started talking. He was going to a wedding, found out he was an architect from New York City and we decided to go down to uh, take a little tour around Paris. And so I invited him to come with us. And as he came with us, I start, we ended up in a cafe in Paris, sitting down and talking. And lo and behold, here's what I found out. When he found out that, that I was a pastor, he said, it's, uh, that's kind of funny. He said, my son is one of you guys. I said, your son is, yeah, and he actually doesn't eat sometimes and so forth. And, so, and, and he told me recently that he wasn't eating, so he was praying for me. I said, that's called fasting. Yeah, well, whatever, he's doing that for me. I said, really? And so here we are in Paris at a cafe, and we get a chance to share the gospel with this man, pray over him. And he knew that it was a God thing, soften up his heart. And he said, I need to go back and talk to my son because I believe this was a divine connection. And I'm thinking, yeah, dude, you almost made me miss my conference because you've been, but your son's been praying and I got to talk to you. I believe that God has a divine orchestration of events when we are open to what God is doing. Paul ends up in Macedonia and he shows up and saying, God, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Why are you called us here? And he ran, he, him and Silas run into a woman at the time of prayer. She's a Jewish woman. She's a, a businesswoman by the name of Lydia. And they begin to talk to Lydia about the Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And Lydia uh, receives the message, is so profoundly moved that she gives her life to Christ and gets baptized right there and invites them to her home. And then, then uh, they're celebrating the fact that, yeah, that's why God brought us here, to speak to Lydia. And then they go out and they're speaking to a lot of people and people are following them and looking at them, wondering what they're all about. And there's a young girl that starts chasing them. And she starts following behind him. We don't know her age, but we know that she's a young girl. And as, as Paul is speaking, she keeps saying, these are men of God, servants of the Most High God. They have a message from God. And she kept shouting that. Several days she did this. She chased after him. And Paul realized something is wrong with this girl. Something is off with this girl. It's not normal. There's something that seems out of place with this girl. And so he turns around and realizes that she has been spiritually afflicted. And she, he turns around to this girl and he says, in the name of Jesus, I, I, I proclaim that you be set free. And she was set free from her spiritual or demonic oppression. Now we find from scripture that her oppression 
related to the ability to foretell the future. The Bible refers to her as a slave girl. So she was being, she was being used by men who owned her, who knew that she had the special ability to foretell the future, to predict the future, a spirit of divination. And they would use her to meet with people that would pay money for her to predict the future. And, but it was not something that came from God. It was something that came from uh, uh, the spiritual world that was not of God. And they uh, released her from it. Paul released her from it. And she lost the ability to foretell the future. Can I just add a word of caution in here? I know some of you uh, have dabbled in your past with different uh, things. And you may say, I don't know if I'm supposed to marry this guy or not. Let me go to someone that can maybe help me out. And you go look at tarot cards or you go to the curandera down the street and they blow smoke and crack eggs over you and, and do all kinds of weird hokey pokey stuff. And you say, well, pastor, I think they're a Christian because they have a picture of Jesus in the back. No, they're not. You know, there's a lot of dark, ugly, weird stuff out there. And just because someone hangs a cross in their bedroom does not mean that it's of the Spirit of God. Hello. And so this is in that category. This woman was being used and oppressed to imitate uh, the things of God. And here's what it says in verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged him into the marketplace to face the authorities. When these men did not care that Paul and Silas were preaching Jesus. But when they lost money because Paul and Silas were preaching Jesus, then they used their political power and influence to arrest Paul and Silas, to bring them to the courts, and to accuse them of stirring up trouble and false accusations against them. Can I pause and just give another insight here? I want you to listen to me well. If someone told you that following Jesus or becoming a Christian would be easy that you would be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous if you gave your life to Christ or if you added God to their li your life, they were lying to you. The message of Jesus is never to make your life easier. In fact, Jesus says the opposite. Do you want to come and follow me? Be willing to take up your cross and follow me. The message of the cross is not that add God to your life and you will never be sick when everybody else is sick and your stock market or cryptocurrency will go up in value when everybody else's goes down or that you will be healthy, wealthy, prosperous and all your challenges will go away. That's never the message of the cross of Jesus. In fact, the message of the cross of Jesus is you want to come and follow me. There is a narrow road that leads to life and few are the ones that find it. It is a difficult path. There's a death to self. There's a taking up the cross. It is not, does not make life easier to follow Jesus. And some of you are sitting there and say, well, you're not convincing me here, pastor, to follow Jesus. I just want to make sure you know what it is. 
I want to make sure that you understand that following Jesus is not about making your life easier, that the Bible never promises that. In fact, you look at the 12 apostles that follow Jesus closely, all, all 11 of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death. Heads chopped off, crucified upside down, burned in oil, and they were followers of Jesus. Only John, uh, only John the, uh, not the baptizer, but John the apostle died of old age and natural death. And I'm not trying to scare you, but I just want to make sure. I don't want to preach a false Christianity that makes people think that this is sort of some heavenly Santa Claus that makes life easier. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is come to Jesus, follow him, take up your cross, but what you get in return, you get the cleansing of your soul, you get the forgiveness of your sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you get the reality that in your next life you will be present with him. But I want you to understand this is not an easy path. It's not an easy path. I run into some people that join up for an easy path and then when trials start and difficulty comes, I want to warn you, friends may leave you. People may reject you. You may have a price to pay because of your Christianity. You may lose your job. You may have people that say, I don't want to have anything else to do with you. You may break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You may have people ostracize you. Welcome to Christianity. And the Bible tells us that in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. What was their crime? The proclamation of Jesus the Christ as the Messiah. Uh, let me add to this, by the way. Why, were people, why was the Roman Empire so against Christianity? The Roman Empire by the way, had a multiplicity of gods. There was hundreds of gods that the Romans uh, invocated. Uh, there was the God of love and the God of war and the God of prosperity and the God of, uh, the God of uh, fruitfulness and the God of harvest. There was hundreds of, God, of gods that people uh, embraced. It was almost like the unions are today in Chicago. If you were part of this, uh, if you did this, uh, you followed this God and you had multiplicity of gods. Why was Christianity so ostracized? Why was Christianity viewed as an enemy of the state? The reason that Christianity wasn't embraced by the Romans and viewed as the enemy of the state is that Christianity, Christianity refused to bow to the emperor as supreme God. The Roman emperor would say you can have all the other gods, but you need to you need to respect me as a God as well. Christians would say there is only one God and we will not bow to you, emperor. The message of Christianity was exclusive. Its ultimate allegiance was not to, was not to Rome. The ultimate allegiance was to Jesus. The ultimate allegiance was not to a country or, hello, a political party. Don't get me going on that, by the way. 
If you are here today and you're a follower of Jesus, that should be your primary identification. It should not be to the left or to the right party. Your primary identification as a person should not be by a political party. You should be a Jesus follower. That should trump all political affiliations. And the Bible says that they took Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. The Jewish law said that you could only beat someone up to 40 times with a rod. The Romans had no such boundaries. And so oftentimes when people were beaten, these weren't, not, these weren't whips, these were rods, canes. And they would beat uh, people, sometimes people would die under the beating, sometimes people would experience broken bones under the beating. These were severe beatings. Paul and Silas suffered beating under the Romans for their mere, because someone in power lost their ability to make money under someone that was oppressed. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ brings freedom to the captives. I believe that many people do not like the gospel of Jesus Christ because it brings dignity to people. Uh, it proclaims the imago Deo, which means that we are all made in the image of Christ. So people that are oppressed, downtrodden, broken, suddenly start realizing they have value and dignity and respect. And oppressors oftentimes don't like when people understand that they have value, dignity, and respect. In this case, these men lost the ability to make money off of this young girl, and so they turned their attention against Paul and Silas, and they used their political affiliation to bring them to the justice, and they were falsely accused, and the Bible says after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now, does it make sense? About midnight, Paul and Silas, beaten, bloody, bruised. They were put in shackles, by the way. And shackles, back in then, the stock shackles where they would put their feet, separate them widely, it was a form of torture. So they were chained, they were bound, they were beaten for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And on top of that, it was the Spirit of God that led them there. It would be easy at midnight to say, Lord, we followed your vision and look where we ended up. God, is this what you're going to do to us? We're just trying to be faithful to you and look what this happens. But I want you to know, I want you to see this. At midnight, Paul probably because he couldn't sleep because he's in shackles, bruised. One of them starts to sing. Maybe Paul started out humming. Praise ye the Lord. His mercy endures forever and ever. Praise ye the Lord. Silas looks over at him. Okay, I got it. Starts to harmonize a little bit. Praise ye the Lord. His mercy endures forever and ever. Praise ye the Lord. I can see Paul now kind of hitting his thigh a little bit. Ouch, that bruise. Let me hit somewhere else. Praise ye the Lord. 
Suddenly, they're both kind of singing. They're looking at each other. Silas, a smile cracks on his face. They get a little louder as they're singing at midnight. Suddenly, other prisoners start to wake up and like, what is that noise that we hear? Are those those crazy Jesus people in the cell next to us? What are they doing? And suddenly, there is praise and prayer coming from a cell that should be moaning, complaining, arguing, criticizing. Let me tell you, because when you're under pressure, whatever's inside starts to come out. If you're filled with the Spirit, then the Spirit starts to come out when you're under pressure. Number two, write this down. Praise sets in motion God activity that opens up doors and manifests his power. Look what it tells us in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, say suddenly. Suddenly means that it wasn't gradual. Suddenly means that it was unexpected. Suddenly means that it happens at a moment and it catches you by surprise. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came off. This was the result of a praise session. Because suddenly what happens is that the praise session starts to change the spiritual dynamics and the spiritual dynamics starts to change the physical dynamics that they're living in. I want you to hear that. I want you to see that. This is important to realize Listen, an earthquake happens and someone may argue, well, oh, it's just probably just an earthquake. No, earthquakes don't make chains fall off. Earthquakes rattle things. They shake foundations, but they don't make chains fall off. Prison doors were open. Chains began to fall off. It was a result of Paul and Silas changing the spiritual climate that affected the physical climate that they lived in. I want you to hear it. This is important. You say, well, how does that happen, Pastor? Well, I know that Psalms 22, verse 3 says, God inhabits the praises of his people. Another version says, God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. Another version, that idea of enthroned means that God sits or God dwells or God manifests himself in the praises of his people. The natural habitat for God is the praise of his people because the praise of his people indicates a people that are walking in humility, acknowledging the sovereignty of God and praising him and worshiping him so that God so that the presence of God has a natural landing place to manifest his power. God inhabits the praises of his people. When you praise, you are not just doing a little diddly of songs waiting for everybody to show up for church so the message could start. It's much more profound and powerful than that when you praise the right way. And the Bible tells us that it set in motion this earthquake, and this earthquake uh, set in motion uh, open doors, breaking of chains. I think this is symbolic. Listen to me. This is symbolic. I believe that there is a component of our praise and worship that fights battles for us that we could not win in the natural. 
Uh, and there's several illustrations that I could give you, but let me just quickly bring your attention to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Do you remember the story of Jehoshaphat? He was a king of Israel. He was surrounded by the enemy army that was going to devastate them. They were way outnumbered, and the prophet spoke to the king Jehoshaphat, and he said to the king Jehoshaphat, he said, I want you to take the worshipers, and I want you to put them at the front of the army. Let them lead the charge and have the army go behind them. Imagine being a worshiper. Hey, the king has said that... Uh, you know, he wants the worshipers up front. Oh, great, great. Up front, you mean behind the shields and spears? No, up front. Like up front, up front? Like up front first, like we will face the enemy up front? Yeah, that kind of front. Okay, you know, I'm, I think I have a sore throat lately. I know I'd love to do it because I'd love to do the king thing, but. <coughs> and the Bible says that Jehoshaphat went out and they sang a song. And the song was, um, it was about the loving kindness of God, uh, praising God for his love endures forever and ever. The worshipers went forth, they went forward, the army was in the back, and look what the Bible says happened. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 22, as they began to sing praises, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Listen, they were defeated because praise of God and worship of God changed the spiritual climate that actually affected the physical climate and their natural enemies were defeated because of the power of their praise. Now, I, I want you to understand this because this is powerful to understand is that there is both a celebratory aspect to our worship and praise, but there is also a combative aspect to our worship and praise. And we see it in scripture. The third thing I want you to write down, write this down, listen. The open doors of praise can shake the hearts of people so they may encounter God. Verse 27 it says, the jailer woke up. Now, the jailer was the person in charge of the jail, obviously. And in those days, oftentimes, the jailer and his family would live connected to the jail. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. You would say, well, why would he kill himself? Well, in those days, if you let a prisoner escape, your sentence was normally death. So he figured, I better kill myself before they kill me anyways. He was desperate because he assumed that because the prison doors were open, that all the prisoners had escaped. And this is what it says in verse 28. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, verse 30. Then he brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, now, now let me tell you something. Something dramatically changed between 1130 that night 
and 12.30 midnight. What changed was that about midnight, Paul and Silas decided not to just lick their wounds and moan and complain and question God. They decided that in the middle of their pressure, they were going to lift up the name of God. They were going to change the spiritual atmosphere. They were going to raise their voices and make a sound that would glorify God. And so they kicked into a praise mode. And the praise mode had a domino effect. And the domino effect kicked into not only lifting their spirits, but causing the God of the universe to take action and deliberate them and set them free and open up doors. And now at about 1230 or 1 o'clock, the jailer who had put them in jail is now on his knees before them saying, what must I do to be saved? Now that is an unusual question to ask. What must I do to be saved? Obviously it appears that the jailer had some sort of understanding that these men were preachers or proclaimers of the gospel. Maybe he knew that they were put in jail because they set this young girl free in the name of Jesus. And he knew that they were proclaimers of good news of salvation but he didn't know the path to salvation. He didn't know how to be right with God. He didn't know what to do about it. So he says, what must I do to be saved? Here's what I want you to know. I believe that oftentimes the word of God, the precursor to softening hearts for the word of God is our attitude of praise and worship to God. I believe that what softens hearts oftentimes is the reaction of praise, prayer, and worship that softens the heart and changes circumstances rapidly so people are ready to come before God who were not ready before. Number four, and lastly, praise ultimately has the power to pave the way for the word that leads people to salvation. Listen to this. Verse 31. They replied. The jailer. The Philippian jailer. Is standing before Paul and Silas. Who are bloody beaten but free. But free. And in the right disposition towards God. I'm describing some of you. You've been bloody and beaten by circumstances. You've been beat up by life situations. Trials in your health, in your family, in your marriage, in your job. But some of you bloody and beaten with bruises are still standing looking to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and your voice has not been silenced. You have lifted a sacrifice of praise to God. You've acknowledged his sovereignty. You said that he is good. You've acknowledged that there is no one like unto God. You have not given in to self-pity or criticism or negativity. You've lifted your voices to the heaven and acknowledged that God is good in the midst of a bad circumstance. Listen, the Bible says, and they replied, they're talking to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to everybody else in that household. Now, some people get confused 
because when it comes to being right with God Almighty, sometimes you'll hear the Bible say, believe. Sometimes you'll hear the Bible say, repent. And so someone says, well, do I believe or do I repent? Let me just clarify. You can't authentically believe in the message of the gospel without authentically repenting. True belief will lead you to repentance. You say, what is repentance? Repentance is a Greek word that means a turnaround. You are going in one direction and you turn around and go in a different direction. In other words, you cannot truly believe without it affecting the course of your life. That's Christianity. Now, sometimes it says repent. You can't truly repent unless you believe. In other words, if you're going to follow Jesus and truly believe, you will repent. And if you truly repent, it means that you believe. So repent and believe sometimes are used interchangeably when it comes to following Christ. Oftentimes the Bible will say repent, believe, and be baptized. A baptism, as we celebrated recently, is a sign, a public sign to the world that our old self has been buried and our new self has come. It's a public sign acknowledging what's happened internally in our hearts. So with that in mind, look at what it says. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to his household. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. Wait a second. What time is it by now? I'm, I'm going to guess it's about 1.32 in the morning by now. The jailer, he's the head of his house, so the jailer comes to Christ. What must I do? They explain, you need to repent, you need to give your life to Christ. Jesus is the Christ. His wife, he says, come here, honey, to his wife. Come here, come here. You need to listen to this. Hey, this is the message. These people are true. Have you seen what's happening? Kids, gather around. There's something that's happening. And they gather around, and they also start listening. And the entire family, at 1.30 in the morning, goes back to his house, and they look for water. Where did they get baptized? I don't know where they got baptized. There must have been a pond around there. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, they're all getting down into a pond of water. Crazy stuff. Getting down into a pond of water, and the entire family was being baptized. Why? Because they had just experienced the message of salvation. They had just had an encounter with Jesus where they believed, repented, and were baptized. Now, now, now let me say this. Some people, some people claim, hey, they claim this verse and say, believe in the be baptized in your whole family. That's not a promise for everybody, but I think it is an indication of how it could happen. How it could happen. Just because you came to Christ, some of you are here and you're the only one in your family that's come to Christ. It doesn't mean that your whole, the rest of your family will, but it's an indication of what could happen. So as I wrap this together, there's two things that are on my heart really heavily this morning. Number one, what's heavy on my heart is some of you that are here today and you are extremely burdened for your family. Maybe you're a spouse and you're here and you're a follower of Christ and have started to come, but your husband is adamantly against your Jesus stuff and makes it clear. I don't want to hear anything about that. Don't invite me to church. What are you doing at church anyways? 
You know how many husbands I've, 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 I've talked to afterwards that said, my wife started coming to church. And I was like, yeah, yeah, church. She's not a church person. And then I started asking, who are you seeing at church anyways? Are you talking to someone? Are you seeing someone? I had husbands come to church saying, I'm here just to check my sum My wife is not seeing anybody at that place. Not involved in a cult of some sort. They're going to brainwash her. Let me tell you, some of you are extremely burdened over family members. You've come to know Christ, but they haven't. Can I tell you something? I, sometimes it's because we go about it the wrong way. Some of you, some of you have tried to force non-believing families to act like believers. That's not your job. Your husband doesn't need you to be the Holy Spirit. Hello? Listen, don't try to make unbelievers act like believers when they're not believers yet. Don't swear around me. Well, they're not a believer. You should be reading your Bible. It's not a believer. It's probably not going to read the Bible. Listen, don't try to impose morality on someone that's not yet given their life to Christ. What you need to do is you need to start praying behind the scenes, praising behind the scenes. You need to start fighting the battle behind the scenes and start praising God and asking that the presence of God will fill that room and fill your house, that God would open up their heart. There's something powerful about the power of praise that starts to change the spiritual atmosphere and ultimately opens people's hearts up to God, but it's gotta be through prayer and praise. Hello, The second thing that's on my heart is that there are some of you who are under pressure and you have, you are under deep, deep pressure right now. And if you look at what's coming out of your mouth under pressure, it's moaning, it's complaining, it's doubt. It's self-pity. It's critical of those that haven't helped you. It's bemoaning your circumstances, but there's very little sound of praise. And I'm just wondering if some of you need to say, Lord Jesus, I have not let the sound of praise come out of my mouth when I'm under pressure. But... I'm determining that as I'm under pressure and I'm in a difficult situation, that the greatest sound that could come out of my mouth is the exaltation of King Jesus, the proclamation of his goodness, the audacity to believe that he's sovereign over my circumstances, declaring his mercy and his compassion and his goodness. And so the more I'm under pressure, the more I'm squeezed, the greater my praise will be, the stronger the volume will be, the more consistent it will be so that the spiritual uh, atmosphere can be changed and it ultimately leads to a domino effect in the natural culture that I live in. Some of you, God is saying it's time to let the sound of praise come out of your mouth in a time of pressure. Amen? I'd like for you to stand right now. 
I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way forward. Those of you that are solo following Jesus at your household and you don't know other people, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you not to give up. Let me close with a quick story. I started pastoring when I was 21. That first year, I got a call from a chaplain that said, hey, there's a guy that gave his life to Christ in prison. He doesn't have any church, but he needs some follow-up. So I said, yeah, I'll go to his house. So I went to his house. He spent five years in prison, been really involved in drug trafficking and weapon trafficking and was really the leader of his household, sort of the drug leader of his household. But he was genuinely saved. And he said to me, I have a big burden for my family. None of them, they think I'm kind of crazy. He said, would you come and speak to my family? I said, sure. So he gathered all his family together. They didn't know why they were gathering. He just said, I want to have a family gathering. They had been used to him from prison and others gathering the family together and helping establish the drug business a little bit better. So he gathered about 20 people in his household. He invited me. They all sat down. The leader of the clan had invited them. When they got there, they said, who's that? They said, this is my pastor. And he said, I want all you to know that I gave my life to Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus now. And you need to get saved too. Pastor, go ahead, tell them. <laughs> they were all looking at each other like, what's going on here? I'm like, hi, my name's Mark. Uh, I say this from a word of encouragement. Today, I'm not going to point them out, but today there are people in this service, sons, grandchildren, nieces, and nephews. This was over 25 years ago that are followers of Jesus because one person believed for the rest of their family and was unwilling to give up.